Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Just, just let it be known that, that, hey, if you ever have, you know, a need, be happy to pray for you. If you ever need, have a need, I'd be happy to talk with you. And if they look at you like you're crazy, just wait. You work there a year, something's going to happen. They're going to come to you because nobody else is saying such a thing. When, when horrible things happen, everybody scatters, except for you. You're still there, still available. Today, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Greatest. We are in Mark 9, beginning in verse 35. As we continue Jesus' description of who the greatest will be in the kingdom of heaven, other than him, we learn how opposite this is from what the world considers the greatest. So let's listen in. We're so polarized as a people, and, and selfish ambition, that the confusion that that breeds is a part of that polarization. So. Um, I, I was thinking about this. If they were the greatest, what were they the greatest at? The greatest former fisherman? I mean, you know, you sit around talking about the one that got away. It was always much bigger than the one you caught. I don't understand that. I would just talk about the biggest one I caught. It'd be like, the one that got away, no one can prove that. But I, the greatest, how about this? The greatest tax collector. Matthew could have said, hey, the greatest. The greatest zealot. They had one of those guys. The greatest thief, that would be Judas or the current demon-casting, sick-healing, dead-raising, gospel-preaching apostle. That's what they had become. James and John, I already mentioned them, they give a serious insight into their personal ambitions. And when they say, we want to sit at your right hand and left, when they send mom to ask, according to Matthew, it says the other disciples were indignant. How dare they ask for the positions we're hoping to have? So Jesus deals with them. And how does he deal with them? Three things here. He was first an example to them. And we cannot underestimate the importance, the power of our example to, to those closest to us, to one another, to those in the community, those at school or at work or at play. What we are is going to speak louder to them than what we say. And if we are an example of merciful and kind and patient and gentle and forgiving and gracious and, and loving all those things, and then we start talking, they're going to be more apt to listen. And if you're working somewhere where people really aren't into the whole Christian thing, and there are a lot of places like that today, just, just let it be known that, that, hey, if you ever have you know, a need, be happy to pray for you. If you ever need, have a need, I'd be happy to talk with you. And if they look at you like you're crazy, just wait. You work there a year, something's going to happen. They're going to come to you because nobody else is saying such a thing. When, when horrible things happen, everybody scatters, except for you. You're still there, still available, still wanting to, to bless and, uh, and heal. So uh, Jesus, a comfort to, an example to them and to us. Secondly, he defined greatness for them. He actually redefines greatness for them. He says it'll be the last, it'll be the least, it will be the lowest. The servant of all is the greatest in the kingdom of God. I don't think any of them, if they'd been given a little survey, who do you think is the greatest after Jesus, would have said, well, it's the servant, the last, the least, the less. If there were a hundred tickets, they were worth a thousand dollars, and and they said, well, you know, 
show up and, and we're going to give them away and, and a thousand people show up. How hard do you work to just stay in the back of the line? How dangerous is it to try to get into the front of the line? And that's because I never hear anyone saying, me last, me last. If you ever played sports, one of the great disappointments is to be picked last. The only thing worse than that is to have an uneven number. And they say, wow, I'm sorry, bro. We, we already have eight on each team. We, we can't use you. And I'm like, but there's still a place in the outfield. But anyway, bottom line, no one wants to be last. No one wants to be least. No one wants to be less. But Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. We used to sing that chorus. You know what it says? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Want to be great in God's kingdom? Learn to be the servant of all. Learn to be the servant of all. Learn to be the servant of all. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. I like those choruses. You know why? Because even somebody who's, you know, doesn't have the best memory or gets spaced out a little easily, I can remember that. And it's not just a song. Plus, you put, you put words to music, you almost always remember them. And, and the, that's Jesus' theme here. You want to be great? Great. Here's how you do it. Well, the path of greatness is service. Service born of love and humility, not tied to blind and selfish ambition. I noticed something else. Verse 35, some act as if Jesus is saying, and you can read it this way, and some do. It says, they sat down, he called the choice of, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last. And servant of all, it sounds like to some, he's going to make them be a servant. He's going to punish them for wanting to be great by making them serve others. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's the greatest in the kingdom. You want to be second greatest? Then serve the most. Then, then, then give your life and, and live your life for him. So, so uh, he, he's not punishing us by letting us serve. That's the grace of God that we get to serve at all. And then he blesses us in serving. Well, serving is the fruit and evidence. It's the proof of true greatness in God's eyes, in God's economy. Third, he provided an illustration, an example to follow because he brings a child into their midst. I like that. So, so no doubt they're sort of in a tight circle around him. He brings this child in and sets him right in the middle. Then he takes him up in his arms and begins to say to them, well, when he'd taken him up in his arms, verse 36, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Children, you have to know, they had no power, they had no prestige, they had no position. But in the eyes of God, those who see through his eyes, every child is valuable, precious, to be treasured, to be loved, to be cared for, to be protected, to be discipled. Well, before we press on, note that their concern about the coming kingdom, it never ceases. And I was thinking about that. And in Acts, they come together. And, and this is after his death, burial, and resurrection, just prior to his ascension. And they're like, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? They're, they're thinking, okay, this has to be it, right? And they're going to be pretty shocked in a minute. He's going to just, you know, go up to heaven right before their very eyes. But he's like, it's not for you to know the times and seasons which the father has put in his hands. He's saying that's, that's not something you should be worried about. 
Of course they're worried. They've spent their whole career walking with him, learning from him, serving him, looking forward to their place in the kingdom. Now they're going to have to die first. And most of them are going to die horrible, brutal deaths. But the kingdom will come. And he says, for now, because all you have is now. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. He says, don't worry about the kingdom. That, that, that'll come in time. Your place will, you have it. But, but for now, and I want to say that, that none of us are promised tomorrow. We're promised everlasting life. But we're not promised that we'll be living here on planet Earth tomorrow. And because of that, we should think about today. Well, what can happen today if I knew this were my last day? Is there anyone I'd call? Is there anyone I'd reconcile with? Is there anyone I would share with? Maybe a little more boldly than, than I did in the past? Because we don't know what the future holds. But, but the bottom line is his priority it is the necessity of his Holy Spirit upon us because you can't do the work of the Spirit and the energies of the flesh and that we become and live as witnesses. Not just witnessing, though we do that, but what we are and then what we share, we become witnesses for him. In our Jerusalem, that would be Chico and the immediate cities around and then Judea, that would just spread out into the county and beyond. Uh, Samaria, we could say that's all of California for us. The uttermost parts of the world, they're still out there. So all it is is the orientation change, but the mission is exactly the same. He doesn't have something different for the 21st century church than he did for the first century church. We win the world one person at a time, and we do it by simply living as he commands and sharing the simple message that he died for our sins, was buried and rose again. There's life everlasting and forgiveness of sin in him. Well, John, verse 38, he gets to a second major issue. And, and uh, John answers saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. I wonder if John isn't just changing the subject. Hey, that's enough on serving, Lord. Let's talk about something we're dealing with right now. There's this character out there. He's like casting demons out of people and he isn't even one of us. I would call this problem usism. Someone serving God, helping hurting people without connecting with or following after us, our group, our gang, our, well, in this case, his apostles. Well, Jesus said, do not forbid them. And he gives them three reasons. The first is, he says, no one can, uh, no one who works a miracle in my name can soon after speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Their mindset here is one that permeates our culture today. It permeates our community, many churches. And here's what we need to know. It's not God's plan to divide and conquer. He laid down his life. He shares the gospel. He gives us an opportunity to repent and come to him. But the enemy's mindset is to divide and conquer. Why? Because if he can keep us at one another, if we're arguing with our Christian brothers over theology or over methodology, and yeah, listen, we can't possibly all be right. 
But every Christian will be in heaven with the Lord. In fact, I've got a poem I found some time back and, and I just happened to find it in my Bible. And it says, I dreamt death came the other night and, uh, oh great, I, right where, where it folds. I, I can't read that part. And, uh, <clears throat> well, I really should have looked at this ahead of time. Uh, I dreamt death came the other night, da, 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 da. An angel with halo bright ushered me inside. I'll get it for next service. And there, to my astonishment, stood folks I judged and labeled as quite unfit of little worth and spiritually disabled. Indignant words rose to my lips, but never were set free, for every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. Anyway, even with the, even with the lack of, uh, you know, preparation or attention, I just saw it and said, you know what, I think that fits into all this. So, so here's what's happening. This, this culture of us and them, it keeps us so busy, so irritated, so agitated, we forget. We're serving the Prince of Peace. We're serving the, our Lord and Savior. We're, we're supposed to be making disciples of all the nations, not deciding who's good or who's bad or who's right or who's wrong. There's only one kind of person on the planet, and that is sinner. And of the sinners, there's only saved sinners and lost sinners. And the lost have a chance to be saved. The saved were there. It's not about us. Now it's about them. Well, they tell that fella to cut it out. Stop. Desist. Forbid or forbade means to hinder, to prevent, to restrain. They did it with words. Today, people are doing it with actions. They're like, they don't like what you're saying or they don't like what you believe. Well, it's getting more hostile and more aggressive. We should expect that to intensify in the last days, and certainly it is. Well, he addresses their concern by broadening their horizons. He just said, don't forbid them. I gave you the three reasons. First, all who are working for me will speak well of me. Secondly, all who are not against us are for us. They're with us. They're on our side. And finally, all will be rewarded, not just for great sacrifices, but even for simple acts of kindness. He's saying, just be busy about my work. You won't have to be stressed out or worried about what's on the news. I want to say we, in our family vacation, we were somewhere, I didn't have any cellular service. I actually had a real break from media and I had just talked about fasting and because it was in the passage like a couple weeks before I left, I want to say we were on a cruise ship. Fasting from food would have been a really bad idea and because uh, the only way to get your money's worth is to eat. And we did. But fasting from media, I mentioned it before it even came up. And uh, such an amazing thing to not have the news. You know, I went away. They were arguing about the Supreme Court. I came back. They'd settled that issue. I could have been stressed out every day. And, and I did pray. For, for all that's going on politically, for all that's going on spiritually, for you personally and for this fellowship and our witness to the community. But, but in the midst of all that, all the little petty details in this 24-hour-a-day news cycle just get you stressed out. And if you're a news junkie, you need to get help. And uh, the best way to get that help is not to pay someone to get you off of the news. You don't have to go to therapy you're not sick. It's no. What you need is just turn off the stinking phone and and don't don't look at the news. It's so amazing. Even my basketball team, the Warriors, lost two out out of five, and that would have been traumatic to me had I actually been around to see that happen. And I'm like, yeah, preseason, who cares? 
But the, the point is whatever bugs you or trips you or bothers you, just get a little less of that and more of this. The world's full of bad news. The good news, it's right in here. And it's only in here. Well, anyway, preempting another possible concern, he addresses the what if they end up being fakes and frauds, phonies. By the way, Judas would have been with them as Jesus shares these things. And this just, this really does get to me because he hears what Jesus says here and then he still continues down the road that leads him to destruction, to betray his Lord, ultimately to take his life and to spend eternity apart from the one who called him and loved him and, and discipled him and sent him out and used him. But Judas never committed to Jesus, though Jesus did all he could for in and through Judas. He says in verse 42, and we're almost there, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him. He'll use those words four times in his conclusion here. It would be better for him. It would be better for you. It would be better for me. If a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It's sobering since everyone sins. He's not saying if you sin as a believer, he's saying if you stumble others, you lead them into sin, you'd be better off dead. And, uh, and then he's gonna give us some examples of this. He reminds us in verses 43 through eight that sin is deadly like cancer, that it kills physically, cancer does, but sin kills spiritually. So Jesus just says, cut it out before it kills you. Three examples follow. He doesn't mean us to take these literally, and I'll share why in a moment, but, but he does want us to take the sin, the, the consequences, the reality of hell literally. He just wants to repulse us and terrify us and horrify us with the idea uh, of doing something to prevent ending up in hell. As if, you know, if your hand offends you, cut it off, he says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Listen, and this might surprise you. He's not contrasting life and death. He's contrasting life and hell because those are the actual choices, you see. Everybody lives forever, not in these bodies. They're not fit for eternity. But Jesus said there'd be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, of the believer and the unbeliever, of the one who knows him and the one who doesn't. And those who do, eternity with him. Those who don't, eternity in hell, a real place. And as he describes it, it's not, it's not that temporary abode of demons and the dead, uh, Hades, it's Gehenna. It's the place where he mentions in each of these illustrations, the fire is never quenched. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life lame rather than uh, having two feet and be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Listen, he says, enter into life, enter into life. Then he says, enter into, because they were talking about it, right? The kingdom of God. It's the same thing. Those who are alive in him will live with him, for him, be with them for eternity. So three reminders, hell's real. 
Physical death is not the end. Those who die in their sin will be conscious and aware in hell, no hope of escape. And you know, when it talks about being tormented, some of our older translations say tortured in hell. It's not torture, it's torment. What's the difference? Torment is mental, emotional, because people in hell are going to realize it didn't have to be this way. I knew it. I heard it. I rejected it. I saw examples of it. Part of me wanted it, but I just wouldn't yield. So he is saying, in essence, it would be better for you. Those words are usually positive. They, they speak of balance or proportion, you know. Here, not so much. He's saying better to enter into life maimed or lame or, or with only one eye than to be cast in to hell. Well, there's one problem. Your hands, your feet, and your eyes don't cause us to sin. They're simply instruments of sin. Paul calls them our members. Uh, he says, no longer as Christians are we to, to yield our members as instruments of sin. Our hands, our feet, our hands can get us, you know, do all kinds of sinful things. Our eyes can sin or lead, you know, take in those images and, and, and our imagination can go crazy. Our feet can walk a path he doesn't have for us. But sin, as we've learned, originates in the heart. Your hands, your feet, your eyes, they're just tools. They're not what leads you into sin, but it's your heart. So we know he's not talking about literally cut off your hand, because if you're a thief and you cut off your right hand, you know what happens? You get good at stealing with your left. And if, if you're a luster, you pluck out an eye, you just lust with the other eye. You go Popeye. And, and uh, if, if you're, you know, you're walking the wrong path and you cut off a foot, you're just going to be hobbling along. But, but you won't stop sinning because you've lost a, a, a part of your body. You can only stop sinning, well, and when you're ultimately stop sinning when you're in his presence. But between here and there, though we're not sinless, we can sin less. But that requires a heart transplant, one he says we need, for hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and one he promises to provide. Everyone needs a new heart. Why? Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. We want a heart that loves like his, that beats in, um, you know, in rhythm with him, that, that, that sings in harmony with him. Well, verse 49, everyone will be seasoned with fire, every sacrifice seasoned with salt. Every believer faces the refining, purifying fires that he uses, the fiery trials that test us and try us. They prove our faith to be genuine. Unbelievers face the eternal fires of hell, of Gehenna. He concludes, and I will as well, salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. You know, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt, so valuable. And in essence, he's saying, don't lose your salt. Be salty for him. Why? Because... Well, back in that day, if you didn't have salt on a ship, there were going to be serious problems. If you didn't have salt on the land, same thing. Salt is absolutely a necessity. And, and so the preserving influences, the thirst that it creates, all those things, great pictures for us. A study for another time, maybe even something we'll chew on a little throughout the week. But don't lose your salt, he says, and then be at peace with one another. No selfish ambition. 
no party spirit, and no failure to deal with our sin. Having salt in ourselves and peace with one another is how Mark 9 closes out. And there's an interesting way of thinking about what happens when we have salt in ourselves. Know that as you spend time in this world, you're going to be around people who hear Jesus' voice as he knocks on their door. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If you, as Pastor Sam suggested, have made it clear that you're always willing to pray for someone or answer questions if they have them, these same people are going to remember your saltiness and will come to you to understand what to do. And if we've remembered always to love others and not to judge them, we may be allowed to be part of Jesus coming in and eating with them. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.